0: Hello and welcome along to the World Game Live. It's fantastic to have your company this Wednesday, the 2nd of December. Can you believe it? My gosh, this year is almost over and I'd venture to say that a lot of you out there will be glad to see the back of it. Let's look forward to 2021 and brighter times ahead. And speaking of brighter times ahead, I'm absolutely delighted for this jam-packed show to be joined by the extraordinary, the wonderful, the delightful women's football expert and the World Game contributor amongst various other prominent outlets, Samantha Lewis. Sammy, great to see you again. Welcome back, my friend. It's always good to be here. Thanks for having me on. It's so great to see you. And of course, likewise, my beloved colleague coming to us from his home here in Sydney, SBS Sport journalist Nick Stoll, a.k.a. Stollage. Stollage. good afternoon to you, my friend. How are you?
1: I'm very good. I'm very excited. Uh, Very excited to talk to Sam. Very excited to talk to Eddie Bosner we've got coming on. Ron Smith. We're going to be talking all kinds of stuff today. Kevin Musket, ACL, W League. So good, good show. I'm really looking forward to it.
0: Really good show. And I'll tell you what is the strength of this show, the aspect that makes it sing. It is the guests tuning in, of course, and joining us on our program, but also those of you tuning in to watch the program and engage with us. I can already see some of you jumping on board already, some of our regulars, our real favorites here at the World Game Live. Michael Long, welcome to you, mate. Great to see you, of course. We will also be referencing the great Diego Maradona. If you missed it, we had the opportunity last week at the time of this great legend's very sad passing to catch up with the likes of Marcelo Carusca and Craig Foster. Uh, and um, and and really take a trip down memory lane and remember him for all of his greatness. And uh, and I know, Stolish, that we'll be touching on him a little bit later on. But, Michael, you are absolutely right. It is the first episode since Diego passed. So welcome back to you, mate. Great to have your company. And Katie Bayou, great to see you. Yes, Sam, she says she cannot wait to get stuck into all things in football. So welcome back to you. A-League memes, you guys can piss off. Um, but anyway... <laughs> Guys, let's get stuck into things. Sammy, so great to see you here. There's so much happening in women's football at the moment, but we have to start off with the news that finally the W League draw was released. You and I and a host of other journals were left scratching our heads last week when the A-League draw was announced, and we were all, of course, waiting for the W League draw to come and, and be announced in unison. But we had to wait almost a week, but we got it finally. We know and what we understand is that there were a few machinations that they were still working through. Uh, we believe that Greg O'Rourke had said that um, there are a couple of things he wasn't entirely happy with but they wanted to fix um so they've fixed all of that we've finally got our hands on a black and white draw that we can pour over but firstly your reaction to that
2: yeah i mean the the social media channels posted you know the draw is going to be released this week and then all of a sudden we just got like the first round and barely even the first round. We got the first couple of games of the first round. So that was frustrating. But when we spoke to Greg O'Rourke, he said that there were a couple of bits and pieces here and there that he wanted to try and fix before releasing it, and that was fine. Um, for the draw generally, I mean, I, I think that it's it's got its pros and cons, as draws always do. I'm really excited that Thursday night football is back starting from round three. We're going to have a game on every Thursday night until the end of the season, which is awesome. We've got 11 doubleheaders, which I think we're going to talk about uh, in a little while as well. I mean, there are pros and cons to those doubleheaders for exposure, for being able to give players better um, sort of facilities, better grounds to work on, all those sorts of things. Um we've got a couple of teams who are uh, sort of stadium hopping as well, which, again, pros and cons, good and bad. Sydney FC are playing at five different home grounds this season. Victory are playing at, I think, four, and the Wanderers are playing at three. Uh, but one of the cool things about the Wanderers season uh, this year is that they're going to be playing a game at the Wanderers Academy out in Blacktown, which has been finished. There hasn't been a competitive game played there by either of the senior sides yet, so that'll be really fun. Uh, Adelaide United are going to be playing their first standalone game at Cooper's Stadium uh, towards, I think, towards the end of the season perhaps, um, which is super fun. They haven't been there and done that for a couple of seasons now as well. Um, but, yeah, I mean, I think those kinds of little bits and pieces are overshadowed by some of the bigger problems with the draw uh, and their problems that we've seen over the past couple of seasons as well. So things like uh, early kickoff times. There are a couple 3.30, 4pm afternoon games in the height of summer which have been scheduled. Um, I think the rationale behind that is probably, number one, double-headers, trying to fit in double-headers. Number two, broadcasting. And number three, ground availability. Um, so these are sort of the the various intersections that uh, FFA or FA are having to um, <laughs> sort of consider and, you know, take into consideration when dealing with this draw. That's perhaps one of the reasons why the, the W League draw did come out a little bit later. Um, But, again, you know, we're going to see the same problem that we saw last season, I think. We're going to see a number of games having to be delayed or rescheduled altogether because it's just going to be too hot for the players to be playing, especially Adelaide playing in Adelaide at 3.30 in the afternoon on a Sunday, you know, in February. It's like you can basically predict what's going to happen already. Um, So, yeah, I mean, again, pros and cons. Uh, Different people will feel differently about different parts of it. Um, and I'm sure it's all, it's all good stuff to debate uh, on, on Soccer Twitter.
0: Mm, we love some good debates on Soccer Twitter. We love some good debates here on the World Game Live. Welcome to if you are just joining us. We have the company of the fantastic Samantha Lewis talking all things women's football. Sam, I want to get your sentiments around, uh, you know, the, the season kicking off at the same time as the A-League, the pros and cons around that.
2: Yeah, I mean, I think I really like the symbolism of it. I think it it sort of signals that the two leagues are wanting to move towards this sort of one club philosophy that they have been spousing for the last sort of couple of seasons. Now they're actually sort of putting structures in place to really demonstrate that. Uh, I think the Rona probably helped make that decision for them in some aspects as well. Um, but, yeah, I mean, I like, I like the idea of the two seasons running concurrently. We haven't really had that before. Uh, we haven't had that before, in fact. You know, the, the two seasons have sort of had moments of overlap, but they've always started and ended at different points. So this is the, the first time that the two seasons will kick off together. Please ignore that very loud truck that just went past my window. <laughs> um, and, the, and and so it you know and it sort of it, it means that the the two seasons the each like men's and women's clubs uh, the same fan bases have an opportunity to really sort of be part of this one ecosystem type of thing that I think a lot of football fans have been wanting. Um, So, yeah, but also on top of that, it's probably got to do with the fact that Fox Sports broadcast deal only runs from December to the end of March. Um, So they're sort of having to squeeze a whole bunch of stuff into that as well.
0: Mm, And it's good that we will be able to at least see one game a week on free-to-air on Sundays on ABC. They'll continue to televise those matches. A a question coming through from Santino Mamone, one of our regular viewers here, one of our favourite fans on the World Game. Great to have you company, Santino. Welcome back to you, my friend. Hope you're doing well down there in Melbourne. He asks, are people going to rock up if there's only 25% capacity for tickets and people that live in regional areas, i.e. Melbourne and Geelong? Sam, your views around that? I mean... (sighs) Yeah, why wouldn't they? I mean, like live football is
2: coming back. I I I would want to go and watch my team play if it was 100% capacity or if it was 10% capacity. And I think a lot of people probably feel the same. Uh, there are a couple of League games that have been scheduled out in regional sort of areas and on the fringes of cities. Um, I think there's a, a game in Victoria that's being played out in Morwell, for example. Again, Wanderers are going to be playing out in Blacktown. Sydney FC are going to be playing in Wollongong. So there are sort of, you know, these sort of fringe communities that, um, uh, that football sort of exists within and that have big football and communities, but that perhaps haven't really been serviced by the, the leagues in the past. And so, yeah, coming back to sort of what I mentioned before about some teams sort of ground hopping when it comes to their home games. One of the good things about that is that you can actually reach these communities that haven't had access to these players mm-hmm. before in this game before. Um, so I think because of that, I think there's a, a pretty nice balance that the draw has struck between those kinds of things. There are like majority of the games are in major cities and city centres with good public transport options and things. But there are opportunities for regional communities to get involved as
0: well. Hmm. Stolica, a question that I have for you and something that we can elaborate on also, Sam, further with you, um, is around what the real attraction is for this W League season given that the host of our major stars are deployed abroad. The selling point from Football Federation Australia's perspective and we also had the opportunity to catch up with uh, Westfield Matilda's assistant coach, Melissa Andriada, yesterday. Um, The selling point is really being sold as this is an opportunity to see some new emerging stars and some younger talent breaking through because we're now in a situation where we're building up to a very busy calendar we've got the olympics coming up i mean a host of tournaments that we're in preparation for uh but what's the real lure and appeal for you from your perspective for this upcoming w league season i
1: i think it's oh sorry go sam (laughs) (laughs) no nick you can go I was just going to say I think it's the discovery of new talent you know I look back to last season and I, I hadn't seen much of Mary Fowler I hadn't heard much of her and then that was the excitement I think in the opening couple of games and then uh, Kyra Cooney Cross she was phenomenal uh, I really enjoyed watching her so every year you know there's always a chance for some young players to step up and we might see them the year you know this year and then they go to Europe next year and that's the really exciting thing so there's all, there's always going to be players coming through there's always going to be great moments and, and, and as the season goes on and as the years goes on, rivalries develop and players are playing against their old teams and that all helps. So there's, there's always something to get excited about. But one thing I kind of also wanted to ask you, Sam, was you know, we had Graham Arnold on the show a, a couple of weeks ago, about a month ago, and he was saying, well, the Y League, you know, it's only eight games a year. And so therefore it's not a league. It's a tournament, eight games. Mm-hmm. The W League is 14. It's not that much more. At what point do we say, when is this going to be a full home and away season? I know that there are budgetary constraints. I know COVID, I know all these things. But when do you think we're going to start to see, I mean, a minimum, I don't know, 22 games or something? I don't know what what the absolute minimum would be, but 14 just does not seem enough.
2: No, it's absolutely not enough. And this has been a drum that W League fans have been banging for a number of seasons now. Uh, I think if coronavirus hadn't happened we probably would have seen full home and away introduced this season um, alongside an expansion club uh, but you know the world is in chaos and they had to react as quickly um, and as safely as they could and so I think this was probably the smartest move considering the financial implications of the Rona as well um, but yeah I mean Arno, Arnie is right and you're right it's it's not the, the season is not long enough it's not a, it's not a league it's really it's a glorified sort of tournament. Um, a lot of the players believe that. You know, I interviewed Teresa Polias, for example, captain of Sydney FC a couple of weeks ago. She has been of the same opinion for a number of years that the W League needs to be longer. That they need to have more games. And the recent performance gap report um, that I reported on for the Guardian it shows exactly the same thing. We need to have more match minutes for our local players. It's just it's just not enough. So. I think the, the, the question that we really need to be asking, it needs to be directed more towards the clubs now because the clubs are in control of the competition and uh, after the unbundling. Um, I know that their longer-term ambitions is to bring the W League up to the same length as the A League, so like a 30-round season with uh, 14 to 16 clubs, but that could be 10 years from now. We don't know sort of what the timeline is on that. Um, but there there absolutely needs to be a longer season, uh, not just because it's going to be better for players, but also because it's going to be better for fans. You know, mm. you, you barely start to you know, pay attention to the kind of new players that we're going to be seeing this season. You barely start to get to know them. Then all of a sudden the season is over and some of them disappear overseas for four or five months. That's not the way that you build a football environment. It's not the way you build a football culture. Um, and I think especially this season, you know, we're going to start to see that. We're going to start to see a lot of clubs leaning into, into youth, into local players. But that's a good thing. And I think a lot of people forget that 10 years ago, we actually went through a very, very similar process. We had the former generation of Matildas, your Cheryl Salisbury's, your Joey Peters, you now your Sarah Walsh's, all of them sort of starting to peter off towards the end of their careers. And we had a new generation of players come through. That new generation happened to include Sam Kerr, Caitlin Ford. Emily Gilnick, Elise Kellen knight We had the current golden generation of Matildas came through in exactly the same transition moment. So we're going to see that again. There are going to be so many great, fantastic, like, wonderful young players who are going to start to get to know now. They're going to show glimmers of potential. And then over the next 10 years, we're going to see them blossom into what I'm hoping will be like, a, a what's better than gold, a diamond generation of players. <laughs>
0: I hope we've got generation. a generation in us. That would be fantastic. And speaking of which, actually, it brings me to my next discussion point, which is around this uh, Talon ID camp that was announced. Um, they had four days in Canberra last week. There was a bit of a, a hiccup in that they had to schedule it, reschedule it from Adelaide because of their COVID uh, cases and the shutdown there and move it down to Canberra. They've gone through that four-day process. Again, we caught up with Mel Andrietta off the back of that, um, and she said that she was very excited by what she saw. Um, it's a great opportunity uh, for her. Sam to see this new talent coming through but do you feel that off the back of what you said you know we could have a diamond generation in us do you feel that we can go one better than what we've already seen or are we living in our golden generation period and like the stock could we be in a similar scenario where it might be a few years before we rediscover that purple patch again
2: yeah, it's a good question. Um, I'm pretty optimistic. And the reason that I'm optimistic is because the structures and the environments that we have for our players now are so much better than what they were when the current golden generation was developing. You know, when Sam Kerr entered the W League when she was 15, there wasn't even a minimum wage. Players were barely paid back then. Uh, you know, it was it was not a, a even really a semi-professional environment. It was still largely an amateur competition. They had to jump back and forth from Australia to the US. You know, they barely got a break. They had to try and carve out a career for themselves with, despite their circumstances, really, not because of it. But I think what's happened now, particularly off the back of this Performance Gap report, is that the powers that be are starting to really understand the importance of putting those structures around these players to ensure that we can maximise the talent and the potential that they have. And so because of that, I think we are going to probably see, it may take a while, it may take another generation, but we are definitely going to see a a generation of Australian players exceed what we currently have, I think.
0: And we certainly are excited by that prospect as well. I mean, the thought that we could potentially produce more quality players like your Caitlin Fords, um, you know, your Sam Kerr's, your Chloe lagazos all of these players that have come through and have really become mainstays within this Matildas team. We want to see that progress. Um, Alex Sivkarowski, good afternoon to you, my friend. Great to have your company, mate. We see you popping up here on the World Game Live frequently, so it's great to see you again. Considering the interruption of COVID, he says, having 14 games is not ideal, but it's something. 2022 season has to be 30 games at a bare minimum. Couldn't agree more with you there on that, Alex. um, We're hearing some scuttlebutt Also, Sam, that it looks as though Lisa Devana will be returning back to Australia. Your views on that? Great.
2: The last I heard, Lisa Devana wanted to take a break from football. So the fact that she wants to come back and and participate in what's going to be a really interesting W League season, I think is really exciting. Uh, there are sort of rumours that she may be going to Melbourne Victory. There are rumours she could be going back to Perth. You know, she could sort of, I mean, she's Lisa Devanna. She could go anywhere.
1: Uh, but,
2: yeah, I mean, I think it's great. And, you yeah. know, we haven't really seen much of Devanna in, in recent years. You know, she sort of dropped off the the Matildas radar a little bit. Um, she played for Sydney FC sort of mostly as a, as a bench player when she was still in the W League. Not many people really watched her when she was at Fiorentina in Italy. Uh, so I think it'll be good. It'll add uh, like a, a bit of a spark back to the league, I think. You know, we're seeing actually a couple of senior Matildas coming back to the W League this season, uh, particularly going to Brisbane, weirdly. Uh, Emily Gilnick to make a yell up. We're probably going to see Katrina Gorey as well. Um, so it's not like the, the, the season's going to be completely devoid of senior Matildas or the big stars that we've come to know on the international stage. It's just there's going to be a, a more eclectic mix and we're going to see them start to play, I think, more of a mentoring role for this new generation of young Matildas and junior Matildas who are coming through as well.
0: Gosh, women's football, it seems, Stolich, is the thing that we can truly very proudly hang our hats on at the moment because we know that um, Australian football has been going through a real period of turmoil. But with the news that we secured the Women's World Cup, with the news also that emerged from Football Federation Australia, and I keep saying that for goodness sake, it's football (laughs) Australia now because of this wretched name change. They're really throwing us through a loop. But on that, Sam, we got to the bottom of that just quickly as a side note about the name change. And it seems as though the powers that be have said that it's time to move in a new and fresh direction. And that was the reason behind the name change. It's time to move away from that old football politics and and things that have really gripped the game for so many years and and actually get into a new era. So that's that's, that's our understanding on why they've moved in that direction. But Stolich, um, the news also that um, Football Australia and Price Line Pharmacy have now partnered uh, in a new sponsorship deal has been welcome and it, it seems to be the kind of injection that the women's game needs now as we build towards 2023.
1: Yeah, the women's the game, game and the game Mini and the Roos, Roos. uh program, which has been really good. So yeah, it's, I think it's a great move uh, for the game. And I was talking to Sam Lewis about this, you know, earlier uh, off air about how it is a really good space because it, it kind of targets women and, and the the right audience. And, and even I was saying, well, wouldn't it be good to, you know, there's so many Priceline stores across, I think, every suburb in Australia. Wouldn't it be good to have W League, you know, signs and and paraphernalia everywhere in Priceline store. So every time you're in a Priceline store, you're very aware of the W League. You know, they could do kind of things like if you spend a certain amount of money, you get discount on W League tickets or even free W League tickets. I just like the idea that, you know, a Priceline is something that we, you know, will go into every day or every other day and for the W League to be a part of that and such in the conscious of Australian minds, I think that's a fantastic thing. So good work getting this uh, Priceline deal across and hopefully we can squeeze all the juice out of it, not just, you know, take the money and that's it. Really engage the community uh, in every aspect.
0: Sam, what was your reaction to it? And my follow-up question to that would be around whether or not we can start to see more injections of cash coming through into the women's game but also football overall.
2: Yeah, I mean, signing on Priceline I think is a really clever move by Football Australia Um, and it sort of comes off the back of their announcements that they've partnered with other major brands that I think are sort of of starting to move into this kind of space, brands like Cadbury, brands like Pantene. Now, in the past, I think Australian football generally has sort of just taken what it can get uh, and run with it um, but not actually really thought strategically about the kinds of brands that they've partnered with. Um, women's football and women's sport generally, I think, is in a really important and really uh, bankable kind of moment. You know, we're seeing so many, not just in Australia, but around the world we're seeing so many major brands come to the women's sport table. Um, and funnily enough, I've actually written an article for The Guardian, which is coming out this week, which touches on this subject, particularly when it comes to uh, fans and consumers of sport, because research suggests that fans are actually much more... Uh, interested in supporting clubs, leagues, uh, those sorts of sporting organisations that are starting to think in more socially conscious ways and are starting to use their power and their resources to do good in the community rather than just try to make more profit and, you know, sell more stuff. Uh, so I, I think that their yeah, Priceline is a sort of a, a it's a good indication that the that FA are, are trying to move towards that and are starting to really understand the role that brands play in in situations like this. Um, and I was talking to Nick before. You know, you can compare it to a brand like Westfield. How many people actually know what Westfield do outside of just being the the name sponsor of the W League and the Matildas? Do they actually do much outside of just giving them money? I don't really see Westfield. You know. Going tooth and nail to ensure that every window, every opportunity they have, they bring Matildas in store to do signings, to do meetings with fans, to do all that sort of stuff. You know, there are some brands that are on board, but they don't actually do a whole lot. So I'm thinking Priceline may actually be different because we saw Priceline last year, they sponsored the Western Bulldogs and the AFLW, and they were really active in that space as well. They were doing promotions, they had jerseys, they had all this sort of stuff. So I think it's really, really important um, for the women's game generally to be partnering with sponsors like this and with brands like this, which are appealing to broader markets that you really want to be bringing into women's sport as well.
0: Mm, Couldn't agree more. So well said, Sam. Um, Your reaction, Stolich, obviously, to the news that Lisa Devana is coming back as I switch gears to that. And and give us a bit of an update on, on what we're seeing with the Matildas abroad also.
1: Yeah, well, uh, I think it's great that Lisa Devane is coming back. I think, you know, she's a big name. You know, she's a proven goal scorer. She's she scored some amazing goals over the year. I, I wonder, you know, what level she's going to be at uh, at this stage of her career. You know, it's a fact that she's, you know, gotten a bit older, but I'm sure, sure she'll still deliver. Again, maybe one of the benefits of it being such a short season is the fact that, you know, you can kind of do well for the 14 games. But, uh, I think it's great. But, yeah, Sam, one thing I wanted to ask about you was uh, Sam Kerr. Uh, you know, we had very high hopes for her at Chelsea. It's not going exactly to plan. It's not, it's not going terribly. She's, uh, I think, played six games, three goals, um, but little less game time than maybe we anticipated. There were those early struggles earlier in the season where she missed a lot of opportunities. Less starts, less, you know, game time. What do you think is the reason behind that? And do you think it is it just a blip or is it something more?
2: Yeah, good question. Um, I think it's a multi-pronged problem for Sammy. Uh, one is uh, our expectations, I think, because we've only ever really seen Sam Kerr flourish at Perth Glory and Chicago and Sky Blue in the NWSL, where she was, you know, the starting player. She was the, te- the, the player that the entire team, the entire system was built around. We never really sort of got to know her or understand how she works in a team where that's not the case. But that is the case at Chelsea she's actually playing in a system and alongside players who are as good if not better than what she is and so she's having to really fight for her her place there you know Um, and she's coming up against uh, another center forward in Bethany England who is perhaps in the best form of her entire career she's probably going to become a starting striker for the Lionesses uh she won almost every individual award in the FAWSL last year So it's really tough for for Sammy coming into that environment and trying to supplant a player like that. But, I mean, it's hard to sort of make judgments from the outside. Like, yes, she's not getting as many match minutes as perhaps we would have hoped, um, as perhaps Tony Gustafsson and the the coaching team of the Matildas would have hoped as well. Um, But she's probably learning and developing in other more important ways. You know, a lot of the influence that Sam Kerr has had in Chelsea so far has more been on the assistant kind of end of things. Um, she is becoming much more of a team player rather than the, the focal point of their attacks. She opens up space for other people. She assists goals. She, you know, sets up all these kinds of things. So there are ways in which Sam Carey is benefiting from not getting as many match minutes as she would have expected. Um, but, again, we have to ask her if she's, if she's really enjoying it, if she feels like she's developing there, if she feels like she's in the right environment for her, then she's in the right environment for her and who are we to judge? Mm,
0: couldn't agree more. I tell you what, there's no judgment on you, Sam Lewis. It is all nothing but praise. You are sensational. We've absolutely loved having you on our show to give us an update on all things women's football related. Of course, so many exciting things coming up in the women's game. Great to have the news that some money is being injected into that space, and also at the grassroots level as well. Hooray! We hope to see some more investment in that area, and also that we have a W League draw. That the W League is going ahead, and we're looking forward to seeing it kick off. And perhaps we'll see some. Uh, women- and that's what we're really looking forward to. But we will catch up with you again as the season comes closer so we can get a fabulous preview from you, Samantha Lewis. You do fantastic work for us here at the World Game and everywhere else that you contribute to. So keep up the great work and great to chat to you.
2: Thank you so Thank much. You so Can't much. wait to
0: come back. Yes, good on you, Sammy Lewis. We love having you here on the show. Great to have her company, of course. We're looking forward to our guest company now that we've got coming on the show. This man, of course, was able to set the A-League alight, and uh, he had a fabulous career over in Asia. He's a fantastic entertainer, a man that always speaks the truth. And last week, of course, he he, he gave a very honest and uh, I, I, I dare say a, a truth bomb that we all needed, a very honest review of where Australian football is at at the moment. And we're so delighted to catch up with the great Eddie Bosley. Anna, Eddie, welcome a. along a. to the show, Daddy. how are you, tell us, how have you I'm been, well. what have you been to? what's news with you?
3: Can you hear me? Yeah, yeah. Are we got
0: we you loud and clear.
3: Okay, good, um, not much, uh, everything's been quite good in the last week, I was on holidays for a week, so a little bit off time, off work, um, and yeah, and then uh, I got your call from you to see if I wanted to come on, and I'm uh, happy to do so.
0: No, we're very happy to have you here, of course, because the the article that I referenced there um, when you spoke to John Davidson, one of our contributors at the World Game, was fantastic. And I actually put up a a tweet and I said, bravo, Eddie, we need more honesty like this about Australian football. Um, But can you tell us quickly before we say hello also and and allow Ron Smith to join us, the great smudger, can you tell us firstly, Eddie, what your observations of Australian football have been, particularly over the last year and the way that things have been handled throughout this COVID period Period? because it's unearthed a lot of issues in Australian football that we knew were there, but we feel as though they've been brought well and truly under the microscope.
3: Look, um, to start and to really be honest with everything, I think we need, a lo- we need hours and hours and hours uh, to talk about the issues that um, are happening in Australian football. But um, the most obvious thing that, that I can see happening is that we don't have players playing at a higher, higher level in Europe any longer. Um, And I think that that's our biggest problem Um, and that that becomes a problem for the national team. It becomes a problem for younger players in Australia who are are looking at someone to aspire to. So how could you as a young player playing in Australia or trying to say, look, I I watch Messi, Ronaldo and and all the English Premier League every week and we used to have Tim Cahill to watch and Viduka and Harry Kuhn. Who are we going to watch now? We're going to watch players in India and, in you know, in in Japan, no disrespect, but I played there as well. Um, and in these Asian countries, instead of looking at players who were playing at, you know, Mark Bosnich who was at Manchester United and and um, Aston Villa and, and Schwarzer and all the rest of them. So the lo- list goes on and on. But in the last few years, we don't, you know, we, we don't have any players playing at a higher level and I think that's a massive problem.
0: It certainly is a massive problem for Australian football and one man that will be able to add to all of this is the great Ron Smith. Dr Ron Smith okay, Smudger, Smudger, fantastic to have your company. Thank you so much for tuning in, old friend. It's always great to see you. Of course, I know that both you and Eddie are very well versed in, in Australian football now and the problems that we're facing, Ron. But firstly, um, your reaction, of course, to, to some of the comments that Eddie's made, I'm sure that you'll agree with a lot of them. But how have we ended up here, Ron? Where did we go wrong? when it came to failing to produce, you know, the, the top quality talent that you had, the, you know, the real fortune and, um, and, and great ability to oversee during your tenure with the Australian Institute of Sport. But, but how have we ended up here?
1: I think you're muted, uh, Ron. I think oh, sorry, uh, if you can, can press on. the microphone icon. Uh, <laughs> can, we have a few technical difficulties, but she'll be all, uh, there you go. Sorry.
4: There we I thought, go, Smudge. I'm on mute because they've got two grandchildren that are a bit noisy in the background here. Um, <laughs> so I didn't want it to interfere. Um, I think there's a couple of things that maybe we haven't really come to terms with, and the first one I would say is the changes in society. Mm. Um, kids these days, from what I can gather, and I talk to a lot of people, they don't spend anywhere near as much time as previous generations did, in the yard. I mean, I've had these discussions with Ned, and he tells me about what he used to do in the front garden, dribbling around sticks and shooting into a goal that he made. And And smashing
0: windows, and smashing windows too, Ron.
4: (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, exactly. Joe Simonich holds the record for that. He did 13 kitchen windows from his own back garden. Um, (laughs) But you know, so I think that's something, because that's where you learn touch. You can't teach touch. You can only develop it. Um, and, and so that is a precursor for being able to play at a high standard of football, in my opinion. And I've always said this, that you only develop feeling, you can't teach it. Now, you can tell people, you can give people tips about what to do in terms of how they prepare their body to receive a ball and so on and so on um but the actual feeling it comes from repetition so if you don't get that repetition you're not going to have the same level of touch and feeling that also then goes into how good are your techniques in passing the ball and actually delivering the ball and having a range of technique a lot of that comes from isolated practice and playing with your mates or having a, a dustbin a chip into now I, I often think about this. That's how I spent most of my childhood because I didn't have, in early days, didn't even have a telly at home. So, you know, my mum used to kick us out on the weekend and we'd be in the park all day Saturday and go home when we wanted feeded. Um That doesn't happen. That doesn't happen almost anywhere now. Um, and so the downside of that is kids don't have the same level of technique. Arsene Wenger said on the weekend, the current players They're technically not as good as, you know, past 20 years ago. And I I think we're seeing that, particularly in the developed nations. Kids do not put in the time. And so what I would say is that the time that you do have them in clubs for training, we've got to maximise the opportunities to actually influence and stimulate and motivate kids to practice, maybe even show them what they can do. Uh, I've, I've had these debates about juggling the ball. People say, yeah, but you don't juggle a ball in the game. And that's correct. Mm-hmm. But you show me someone who's good at juggling the ball who's got a touch like a baby elephant. It doesn't happen. Mm-hmm. You know, um, touch and juggling go together. And, and so I think what we need is we need to find a way of motivating kids to actually practice on their own and with a mate or even doing things in, in the driveway or indoors. Tom Byer's been saying for a long time now, and I'm a big fan of what Tom's advocating, that ball manipulation should be encouraged before kicking the ball. Mm. Because most of the problems that people have isn't isn't kicking the ball somewhere. It's actually stopping and starting and changing direction and, and being able to do that without actually looking at the ball. Um, I mean, I used to joke with your brother, Lucy. I always said, because he was a lot taller than me, I'd look under his chin and say, where's your third eye? <laughs> you hardly ever saw Ned look down. And I used to say in bewilderment, how the hell does he do that? Because Ned was always up here, and yet he had manipulation skills to die for. Now, if we know that that's a prerequisite for players at a later stage, if you can get everybody to that level, then what do we start with? Well, let's start with that at a at a young age and encourage kids to play and have fun at a young age rather than trying to force them into playing football a certain way. So I think as Eddie said, there's a there's a couple of hours of discussion here. Um <laughs> but that's one of the things. So how do we cope then with changes in society? Um and there are some good Advantages as well, though, Luton, from having technology. You can actually now show kids good stuff. Um, you know, and as Eddie rightly said, our role models. Well, unfortunately, at the moment, we haven't got too many that are on TV every week, but there are other role models. Uh, they're just not Australian. So we do have that um, capacity, um, but it's it comes from a bit from within I believe, you know, if if you want to become a player, that it comes from within. And that's why I'm against saying to kids at eight years of age, you're not good enough. Mm. Me, you know, that's criminal. I wouldn't say to any kid you're not good enough or something. Um, That's me personally uh, because I think a lot of kids, they're they're just starting the game at eight. So how do they know what's good Mm. and what isn't? Most kids in their teenage years actually don't know how good they are until somebody says, I'd want to offer you a place in a program or would you like to, you know, come to this club where we can offer you some specialist training. That's when a lot of kids suddenly go, oh, okay, so you think I'm good enough for that. I asked Joe Simonich, I said, Joe, when did you actually first think about being a professional footballer? He said, Ronnie, it wasn't until I was training with you at the Institute mm. and people like Skokes and Vadooka and Lucas Neal were all talking about playing overseas, I thought to myself, maybe I'm good enough then because I'm here with these guys and I'm two years younger. Mm.
0: Eddie, you know, Eddie... Eddie, I'd love you to, I'd, I'd love Eddie you to uh, sorry you to elaborate on that and talk to us about your upbringing and your relationship with professional okay. football and how you came to realize as as what Ron is saying that this yeah. was something that you really wanted to pursue. But also drill into us about you know your upbringing in terms of how it was you know brought on you that you wanted to play football. Was it something that your parents drove that you had outside influence on? Because I mean, when I walk down the street, right, and I did it just yesterday with my partner and my 19-month-old daughter who, by the way, will kick anything that's in front of her with no instruction from us so it's clearly just in her genes. Um, but, you know, we walk past people's houses and there's cricket balls on the front lawn, there's baseball bats, there's basketballs, there's AFL balls, there's rugby league balls, there's soccer balls. I mean, you know, how can we expect kids like they do in South America to worship this sport when they're so spoilt for choice but they're also competing with so many other outside influences like social media, etc. So give us your insight into your okay firstly, firstly hi, firstly smudger heist <laughs> <laughs> uh, 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 for, uh,
3: the first thing I'd like to say is that I think that parents these days are babying their children too much I think that's a big problem you get driven to training you get your a, a drink bottle whatever drinks you want done back in the day when we were growing up a lot of us had to f- even find public transport or even walk to training stuff like that makes you stronger but Smudger, I have to admit that I think that the Australian Institute of Sport, no matter how many times people say it, I think that that's our biggest problem that we've lost because when I went to Europe from, or I played in, I was at the Institute, I went to Newcastle Jets where, and also this is the way it was run, uh, things ran, was Rocky or Steve O'Connor called Cozzy and said, Cozzy, I've got a young defender here. Can you take him and have a look at him and give him seven or eight games to the end of the year to see how he goes? As soon as I did that, I went there. I was playing with older players. So stuff like that, and it doesn't happen any longer. So no disrespect to our national team coach at the moment, but when he was coach of the A-League team, he had no young players playing in the team at all. Mm. So how can we say, okay, we don't have any more 17-, year old players. We used to have Steve Corica playing at Marconi, I don't know, you you had Popovich's, you had, there's so many young players who played at 16, 17, 18 years old. I played in the end of the cell against John Barkovsky when I was 17, not even, coming out of the the Institute of Sport. I never had, I didn't have a hair on my chest. The guy was like a gorilla, and I was marking him. (laughs) And Cosby was saying to me, Eddie, go and kick the hell out of him. What are you scared of? These days, it doesn't happen. So... Going back to the Institute of the Sport, we were ahead of time as far as sports science went compared to any club in Europe. I went to Dinamo Zagreb. We didn't have an ice bath. We didn't have a spa. I was yeah. playing in the yeah. I was playing the UEFA Cup at 19 years of age. You're lucky to have two showers in the change room. Yeah, yeah. and then you think to yourself, what we had at the Institute of the Sport, we were already ahead of everyone else, but now we've fallen back. Instead of going forward... We've taken three or four steps backwards. The coaches these days, you're saying, Smudge you're saying, oh, we're we, we eight years old. But do you know what kind of type of coaches we have out there these days? The disadvantaged children from the west of Sydney who, who have so much talent, they their parents unfortunately haven't got the funds to pay for a four-day uh, four or five-day-a-week coaching. The club should be doing that. The FFA should be saying, this is how much each registration should be should cost. It goes around the whole board of the whole of australia you can 't have one club paying two and a half three thousand in sap the other guy 's got he 's got four kids i 've got a guy who 's got five children, five male croatian boys and I tell you if he had money his five children would be playing in Europe in ten years' time, but he can 't do it because financially he can 't afford it so it 's all nice to say we 've got all these. All these guys, look, I've got friends who run coaching clinics. I run a coaching clinic. I don't run it to uh, – to as a, as a or my family and my brothers, uh, uh, we've got a company called Fast Football. We do it to make money. And I, I'll be honest with you, it's daycare, and it's to make money until they're 10 years old. After yeah. that, they go into all these other academies, right? These academies are not there, – they're there to, to, to make players okay. But it's if the parents haven't got the money to do it, they can't send them to these programs. They can't send the kids to SAP programs. Yeah. The best way they found young players was when they played in, in uh, the state competitions. Smudger, you know my situation. I was 14 years old. I didn't make the under-15 state team with Kelly Cross. Do you know why? Because I wasn't training with him every day at New South Wales Soccer Federation. Do you know what happened? I got a call by Steve O'Connor saying, you're not in the 15th, son. You're coming to the 16th. Wow. was it? 14 years of age playing in the under-16 state team next to Brett Emerton, Bresciano, against all these boys. or not Bresciano, sorry. Colosimo, Grilla, all these guys. I went to the Institute of Sport. I was one year younger. I was catching the bus with the gymnast to school because I couldn't go to Lake Gendera. But Steve O'Connor and Smudger saw the potential in me. Yeah. What coaches do I have these days who have got that? No one's got that. And that has to start from the FFA, going into the national team coach, and all the rest all the way down into the youth programs. I'm not saying... That you go into the Institute of sport, you're going to become a player and play in Europe. It's not going to happen. Uh, it, 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 that's not the way it works. Because Harry Kew didn't do it. Never did Tim Hart, Carhill, Never did Jason Chalina. But it gets a lot of players ready for what they have to do. And if not that, they will go into the A League and they will play. They should be playing straight into the A League. If you're not good enough to play in the A League at 17, 18 years of age, you're wasting your time going to overseas anywhere. And our problem is that we don't blood these young players to play in the A League. When the coronavirus was on, I'll tell you, I was watching the A-League. The foreigners weren't playing. The young kids were playing. The, kids, the game was faster. It was more interesting to watch. Mm. So if they're taught in the proper way. So coaches like Steve O'Connor, I don't even know where he is. I learned everything from people like himself, from Smudger, from Ivan Petkovic, who now is tra- coaching under-14s, 15s at Sydney Olympic. And I'll tell you, we'll get around. People want to push it to players that, for him to coach because he made players like myself. He played the game. All these coaches these days are learning how to coach from a computer. I didn't do my C license. I stopped and I walked off because I saw the way that things were going. And I said, you know what? I can't do this. Because 20 years, I went overseas. I played for all these clubs. In Croatia, when you've play, when you played in the Champions League or for the national team, automatically you get your B license because they want to push people like myself and all the rest of them to go and coach as quick as we can. Mm-hmm. Get it done. What's how are you going to teach a kid at 14 years of age how to trap a ball, how to knock a ball how to, which side well, he's going to teach him on, on on the computer which side to play him the ball how to push up from the fence what's the right time to relax the game what's the right time to quick the game up you can't teach that you yeah. can only teach that through it's like, it's and it hurts me when I see that we have potential Australians are really good sportsmen now, if you teach them the right way to go about football. We will have players in Europe, but the coaching system, the SAP system, these all these systems. If you haven't got money, you can't. You, your kids aren't going to make it. Yeah. So, Smudger, I don't know if I'm wrong or right, mate, but I, I, I'm pretty sure that I think that I'm going down the right track.
0: Mm. I think everyone agrees with you that you're going down the right track, actually. Before we get to you, Smudger, and I'll leave it to Stolich to ask some questions as well off the back of this, but Stolich, just quickly give us a brief snapshot. Caitlin Fitzsimmons, um, she wrote a couple of really poignant articles that have that have attracted a lot of attention so far for the Sydney Morning Herald about the cost to play for juniors and how effectively it's a massive rot right across Australia. The question that we're posing to a lot of our viewers here today and that we will pose to our panellists also, although I think the answers are pretty redundant, but how can we lower the cost for juniors and is it harming our youth development I think the latter question is pretty clear that it is harming our youth development but Stolich, can you quickly before I hand over to you to ask some questions just give us a brief snapshot of what Caitlin Fitzsimmons was speaking to in those articles about the cost of play
1: yeah so check it out if you haven't seen it. it's in the SMH and I think the age as well but basically and I'm sure this was just focusing on New South Wales but I'm sure it's the case across the other states and let us know in the comments any experiences you've had with the cost of playing but numerous numerous stories about you know players uh kids turning up and parents being asked to pay an optional fee so they're they're in a program and if they want their kid to be starting every week you know there's this optional fee that comes up you don't have to pay it but you might notice that if you don't pay the 750 dollars, that your kid isn't starting so much and everyone who did you know opt to pay for that their kid is starting every week so so there's that there's uh stories of you know there's trials on for um you know a sap program or a team but there are no spots available and the coach kind of freely admits at the end well listen to be honest there there are no spots so thanks for coming out here but you know whatever stories of you know there'll be two there'll be trials going on there'll be one pitch here and one pitch here and the coach is only watching one of the pitches and they're not seeing so all these stories are stories of, you know, uh, parents having to, listen, we want to sign your kid, but you've got to give a deposit right now. You know, if you, if you don't, you're going to lose your spot, that kind of stuff. So there's all these stories that are coming out, and I'm sure uh, people can tell us in the comments and let us know, you know, your experiences, because I think it's important to get the word out there, especially, like, it's not just happening in New South Wales. Let us know what's happening in Queensland. I know in Victoria right now, they're having a nightmare because players are still being charged or clubs are being still charged registration fees. For 2020, they didn't play a game, most of them, because it was shut down because of COVID. But apparently there are fixed costs and there still has to go. What's that about? Let us know what's happening in Victoria. So it's just that. But what I wanted to ask uh, you, Ron, especially, and and maybe Eddie talk about like the way you come up, but we hear about all these SAP programs. We hear about all these coaches and the licences. And you would think, oh, my God, they're going to develop such good players. that. But, Ron, when you were in charge of the IAS, we didn't have these programs, you know, Players were coming to you and it seems that they were, you know, I don't see any players nowadays that are, have the technical ability of a Mark Vaduka, of a Harry Kuehl, of a Mark Bresciano, of a, you know, of, of a Ned Zelich. And they didn't have all these SAP programs. So are we actually any better off with these programs? Are we actually seeing what I would think we should be seeing in theory, which is the result of... Better players, more technical players, but and maybe it's because, like Eddie is saying, because real talented players can't afford to be in these uh, systems. But it just feels like we're actually, despite the kind of hyper coaching and and more more coaching and and SAP and all these programs, it doesn't seem like we're actually seeing better technical players.
4: Actually, that's um, that's a really good point and a, a very good question about what happened years ago. And it, I go back then to what I said earlier, that Ned told me that he first joined a club when he was nine, okay, because somebody came to the school and said, if any of you want to play for a club on the weekend, and Ned went home and asked his dad, and his dad said, yeah, you can go and join that club. And Ned, Ned told me this, that he was immediately put in the under-11 team, and he always played in there. Um, but the emphasis then was just on kids being able to play, Um, So, you know, there's someone like Ned Who developed, you know, a lot of technical ability By playing in the garden and down the park And didn't actually join a club till he was nine But he wasn't told, oh, you're not good enough Or you're a superstar at nine He just joined a club that he could play in At at a, a level of ability that suited him So because of what he learned at home he was more advanced than some kids that just went to the club for the first time as under. So what worries me about so-called SAP programs is that I think they may be um, overdoing it. There's nothing wrong with having talent ID programs, but essentially my belief is young kids need to fall in love with the game and, and, and look forward to going back next week to play. Now, I'm not saying that they don't do that in a, in a lot of cases, but to to kind of go back to, so how did that impact on players years ago? Well, they had freedom to do what they wanted, when they wanted, to some degree. They had a football season, and it may not have been very long, but because they'd love the game, they'd play in the park, they'd play in the garden, they'd do all sorts of things like that. And I, I just worry now that I hear about some SAT programs where they're playing 40, 40 weeks, three, four nights training a week at nine years of age. If you do that for three years, you're probably liable to actually fall out of love with a game because you haven't done much else. And there's a danger of that. And there's plenty of evidence to show that the, the multiple sport approach for young people to, to learn to play different games and experience that um, is beneficial. And there's a lot of research also to show that It's not until the early teens that a lot of kids, boys and girls, make their mind up about, am I going to be serious about trying to be a netballer or a footballer or a basketball player? I mean, I know there are several players um, who had to choose between a cricket career. Scott Ollowinshaw was one. He was a wicketkeeper for uh, New South Wales, um, played with Steve Waugh in that, but Ollie wanted to be a footballer. Steve Waugh went into cricket. Now, they both played international sport, but they were both good at different sports at a young age. And there were lots of kids like that. I've got one, you know, a young lad in the TSP program now who's a top basketballer in the state. He can also be a very good footballer. He's going to have to choose somewhere along the line how serious he wants to be about one of those sports. And what a nice position to be in. But if he hadn't had a varied background as a kid, um, then maybe he wouldn't have those choices now and one 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 I don't want to hog the limelight here, but one of the things that I would say also uh, about youngsters growing up is that that they need some freedom to express, and there's nothing wrong with playing games, but I've learned recently of some young players giving the game away because the match experience is a bit too traumatic for them at eight years of age um and so they've given the game away, friends of mine who've got kids, and they say, oh, he's quite a good little player. He loves going training. If he could just go somewhere and play, he, he wouldn't give the game away. But the match ordeal is too much for him. He, can't, he, he doesn't enjoy that at all. Um, so maybe we have to think a little bit about, so why are we doing this for eight-year-olds? Are we already deciding who's going to play for Australia at eight? That's a nonsense because nobody in the world has been able to work that out. Most people can't work it out at 12 and 13. So why are we doing it with eight, nine-year-olds? Why are we saying, you're not, reject, reject, kick someone in the guts at nine? Okay, what effect does that have on kids? That's what concerns me. Um, so I'm dead against all these. I mean, some of the things that Man City and Man United have done, for me, are a disgrace. They have these trial periods for six, eight weeks and then they they turf kids out so you're not good enough but we'll keep you on and keep you on. What effect does that have? I mean, if I was a young kid like that, I'd never be a Man United supporter growing up. <laughs> that, you know, So are we prepared to just say, oh, no, well, we don't need all you people to become involved in the sport and play it for enjoyment because we're all about trying to pick the best kids at seven. Someone tell me how you do that. You know, and so I wonder sometimes if we've lost the plot when it comes to why we're doing things, and maybe we need a major rethink. So, there you go. Well, I
0: just just don't understand, Eddie. We have lost the plot. Look,
3: I I just don't understand one thing, right? They've got the salary cap for the A League, but then every federation or every club has a different registration. It just doesn't make sense. You can cap what you want, but when it comes to capping it for actually doing it properly, there should be a registration that you know. This is what you pay. This is what you pay for every child. Hmm. All it is is money, generating money. What they should be doing, and this is what it's done anywhere in the world. So you get your players. They all all – in different countries, it's different prices. That's normal, right? But here, okay, have a registration. If you do make it, you've got these clubs – FIFA pays back money anyway from the transfers if the kids are good enough. But what we're trying to what everyone's just it's just like a business, and that's all it is. It's just an ongoing business. And for the parents, and I feel sorry for the parents because they've got to buy the three four hundred dollar boots, maybe two pairs a year, you've got three kids, you pay your three thousand for your SAP, you've got to be a multimillionaire for your kids to play in any league. It's ridiculous.
4: Mm-hmm. So let's say yeah. yeah, about the SAP. In Victoria, mm. they have a SAP program. Doesn't cost anything.
3: There you go. I okay? didn't know that. Well, yeah. So that's it, perfect. It,
4: that's what it, That's it, the way it should be. Yes, it varies from state to state. But what they do in Victoria, they've done a couple of great things in Victoria. Actually, I'd like to share. Um, but the SAP program, if if a club agrees to have more than two training sessions, they can apply for a, a, a SAP identity, if you like. Um, and then they get help from the Federation. They get resource materials, all sorts of stuff, and it's all provided free. They have talent ID centres so that any kid, rich or poor, can kind of get a trial and be seen, so it's a great talent ID programme. They then have an opportunity, and I think it's something like 10 bucks a session if if they want to be participating in that. But it's open for anyone to kind of trial to. Clubs can nominate kids to go into it. The other thing that has come out of Victoria uh, in the last couple of years, and I was involved in this process, so um, I'm I'm reasonably in tune with what happened and the outcomes that were were processed. But to try and overcome this differential between abilities so that you could get the best playing with the best more often and not have blowout scores of 10-0 and stuff like that, which is going to happen every now and again, I know, but you don't want it happening every week. So they came up with a system where they combined MPL clubs and community clubs, right? And they they came up with 48 clubs in four divisions of 12 geographically. And so the first 11 games of the season, um, you then decide where you are in position. Now you might get a few mismatches in that bit, okay? But it's not impot. It's not possible to eliminate. A team winning by more than five goals uh, it still happens in the premier league and um, so what they do then is the top three in each division then go into what they call the first division and they play home and away rounds so they get another 20 odd matches and then the teams that finished four five and six they'll go in the second division and then they play across districts so they're reducing the amount of travel in the first instance right? But they're also trying to get like with like. So if you're a team that maybe copped a few batterings in that early round, you're going to be play with all the other teams that all finished in the last three positions. So again, you're like with like, and at least they're more competitive. Now, I think that's, that's a great way of doing things, and it resets every year. So the next year, if your team's got better, you might go up and you know, you might find yourself playing in the 4, 5 and 6 division, you know. Um, so, I think ideas like that to look, cover uh, a uh, number of issues are very good. I Smudger,
0: wanted I, I to... Could, could, could
4: I just say, just say, say
3: something quickly? Yeah. We're, we're so fortunate, right? So, in Australia, when you look at all the best players that come, we've all come from somewhere into Australia. We all, we've all migrated here, no matter who you are, right? Yeah. Now... At the moment, we're having we're having more and more migrants coming into Australia from different areas now. Before it was Eastern Europe, Italy. We had a lot of the Scottish, the English. Now we've got other other we've got the uh, uh, um, Middle Eastern people coming in, and and all different all different backgrounds, right? If we had proper programs in place, the, how how much there is to choose from from all these different backgrounds, all these different players, so. Like I said, it all comes back to parents not being able to afford it. There has to be a stop to all these registrations going up. It's ridiculous. Who, I, I honestly don't understand how one club can charge one amount and then another club will charge another amount. Where does that money go?
0: But does that solve, an, all of, a, that solve all of our problems? And I want to no, no, it doesn't. From, but from you've, from you've got a lot of un- players. Un-
3: but you're, you're losing a lot of players that could have made it, Lucy.
0: Of course, and then, of course. And then, that's
3: that's but, just, it
0: that's just how it works. It speaks to what Ron's saying. It speaks to what Ron's saying in that we have societal issues that are now actually taking over and are competing influences for our kids. Parents, the way that we're parenting our children. Eddie, you can speak to this. I, You know, my father, of course, encouraged my brothers to play football. If I came home and told my Croatian migrant father that I wanted to play cricket or something, he would have told me to pack my bags and move out. And I'm sure yours would have done the same too, Look, but that's how yeah, they you know, are.
3: I, I, I was you too scared had to ask. But do you know the... Yeah, can I tell you what the, the difference what was? The difference. All right, So... We were never pressured that we had to make it, mm. ever. The parents yeah. today, there are so many yeah. fathers and I know them, Yeah, never made it in the game. They see that in their sons. That's yeah. sad. The mothers yeah. see that in the sons. Mm. I, I, it's ab- When I go to watch games, I'm like, wow, this never happened when I was playing. Yeah. And the parents put so much pressure on the poor kids. Of course, we're going to have mental problems with children. They're going to be depressed. I used to go to bed with a so- with a soccer ball. They go to bed now with a PlayStation stick. It's different.
1: Can, can I? We've ask? got to
3: respect that, though.
1: Do you think one of the reasons that parents are putting on so much pressure in their kids is because they're paying so much money? Because they're like, I'm paying $5,000 for a SAP program, extra academy, boots. They're on, man, it's an investment.
3: (laughs) Yeah, That's the way they're looking at it. I speak to – I've got friends in the game, kids that play all the time. It's like, my son's going to make it. Oh, he's going to Liverpool. Oh, he's going to Chelsea. He's going to Real Madrid. And I think to myself, do you want me to tell you now? Or do you want me to tell you later? And they, <laughs> and so they asked me, what would you do? And you know what I said to them? Go to school. Mm. Because you can always train to become a footballer. There's a, But if you've got that background of a school, there's no dumb soccer players. They can say they're dumb, but they're not dumb. To be a top-notch world-class player, you have to be switched on. If you mm. look at Ronaldo, what he does now, he reads books now. He gets people to educate him in what he lost because he's investing all this money in all these businesses. So it's go to school and then that's what the rugby union does. All rugby union guys who play for Australia who have done well have got good backgrounds. They've gone to good schools. All we focus on is they have to be footballers. And I think that's the fault of the parents. It's the fault of the, the way that they're brought up. The coaches that are coaching these days. You know, look, I had really good coaches. I was fortunate. I had players who played the game. You go now to have a look at the players that a lot of coaches haven't haven't played the game. We're fortunate that now in the A-League, there's, there's coaches or most of them play at a really good level. So I'm hoping and, and that they will actually bring stuff into it. Our national team coach played at the top level. Hopefully he can bring that in. He's a smart guy. He can probably get that going. But they have to blood young players. And there has to be a rule where in the A-League, we have to have young players playing. Otherwise, there's no point of bringing in foreigners on $800 million a year who are average players because we've got the same quality here anyway. So...
0: We've been having the same conversations Kandia, for 30 years, effectively plus. And 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 before we move on to what's happening in Asia and um and your role with the starting 11 panel, because I'm conscious of the time. Um, but we've got a question from Gianluca Anzalone, which I think is a really um a, a bang on question in this situation because we all know. I think we personally we have lost the plot in Australian football. Eddie, you're absolutely right in saying we've gone backwards. Smudge, you've hit on so many key points about why we've ended up where we've ended up. You know, moving away from the Australian Institute of Sport. We we can all acknowledge now in hindsight was a very bad idea. But what we're devoid of is how to fix these problems. So Gian Luca has asked, so what would be the call to action to change this? How can this be changed? where do we start? Because so many of us, I personally, particularly over this, this last year, I felt so fatigued and burned out from the problems that Australian football is experiencing to the point where I'm almost a bit kind of over football, over Australian football. I'm over it all because I just know that we have so many issues that we're facing. But how do we actually get over that? We know we've got to lower the costs. We know we've got to focus on getting kids more match minutes and introducing better quality coaches and giving them more opportunities to develop technically. But how how do we do all of these things wrong? How do we get to the next conversation of change now?
4: Okay. Well, one first off is recognizing that you've got a problem. <laughs> That's right. Which yep. we do. That's the first point. Yes. And so a lot of people have been vocal. The 11 principles that the FFA have developed have come out of all of these sorts of things being highlighted and people expressing their opinions about what needs to be done. Now, you can't do everything in one hit. And I know. It took FFV 18 months to do research and involve everybody in it before implementing a change to the competition structure. I also know because people came in with their books that saying that to do uh, an MPL training program in good facilities with qualified coaches and three or four sessions a week plus a game on the weekend costs money and you're guaranteeing a a 40-week program for that, the majority of people, if if you can do that for under $2,000, you're getting good value for money. Now, so what do we do for the people that can't? Well, it's been suggested that we need to start being a bit creative and getting NPL clubs to recognise and work with everybody for the good of the game. So if there are some kids who can't afford it, then maybe we can have some kind of a compensation where Clubs could actually accommodate one or two kids. But alongside that, you've also got um, open trials to have talent ID. And I think that that's that's something that um, is happening in a lot of states. It's then what do we do for those players who want to be, if you like, playing or have got the ability to play at the higher levels? We need to have some programs that are free of charge for really talented kids. So you know that the only reason you're there is because of your talent and not how wealthy you are. And that's what used to happen years ago. When I was a coaching director right. in the 70s, I used to have trials for the state teams. I coached the state team. All the kids had to do was turn up. They didn't pay a dollar. Right. Yep. And you were there. I on agree. And I think we just need to be able to say, how can we provide opportunity to be able to do that? You know, and... I know there are differences between the number of games that some clubs play in. I, I don't like the term, but let's call community clubs. They may have a 20-game program. Now we used to do that years ago. Somebody, a friend of mine told me this morning who went through it, and he said, but on top of that, Ronnie, what we had when I was a kid was the opportunity to be into a rep team. Now it might have been a regional rep team, but I had more training. We played against the other rep teams. And then we picked That's a right. state team, and the state team made right. international championships. So we had this tiered system of talent ID and development. Because just identifying the talent isn't enough. You've got to do something with it. And I, right. I firmly believe. So we, you know, we've got to be a bit creative in the way we do it. And um, the information I get uh, for the NPL for the teenage years is that that is – you know, if you can get a good MPL club for around the $2,000 for everything that they provide, then that is pretty good value for money when you work it out on an hourly basis. It's do we need a $3,000 SAT program? That's, they're, they're the ones that kill me. So I, I And I think to my knowledge there's only two states basically that charge large fees for SAT programs. And so I'm saying I can understand how it's evolved, but do we need we need to reconsider the way we're we're identifying and helping eight, nine, ten-year-olds develop without telling them they're not good enough. You can you can you can be creative in the way. And who's to say? Uh, you know, are we saying to kids, if you don't start playing by nine, don't bother? And, um, my, my son, who's been coaching in the NPL in Adelaide, he's got a top talent in his team. Didn't start playing football till he was twelve. Mm. You know. <laughs> And um, so there's no, you know, just because you don't play at eight and nine doesn't mean to say that you haven't got any chance of going forward and being a professional.
0: What about, um, Eddie, from the coaching perspective? I mean, you said you were coached by some fantastic coaches during your career um, and, and also this ties into the news item that we've heard breaking out this morning that Kevin Musket has been sacked from his yeah. side in Belgium after just 14 games and, and we're asking the question to all of the fans about where to for him. But, Eddie, firstly, your view on how do we improve the quality of coaches that we've got at that level and then second to that, your reaction to the news about Muskie because it's hard. We want our Aussie coaches to be doing well, particularly in Europe. Look,
3: I I think that the club, the FFA, and all the clubs have to have a better better relationship for starters with the NPL clubs, with the A clubs, with everyone else. Right? Then they have. Then what we need to do is we have to bring back people who have to. Some people are going to have to do it for nothing, and to come back and say, "Look, for example, my old club, call me, Eddie, come and help us for one day. I don't know. We're, we're going to do a program for for our elite kids. Come in and do something. Help out." no one reaches out so it's it's a boys club and it's dangerous um there's a lot of coaches out there who have never played the game before and look i have four coaches who haven't played the game at a higher level and when they're a little bit older but i think these younger coaches so i spoke to i played together with freddie Lundberg um in japan and we, we stayed friends and he worked in the academy at Arsenal for a long time and we spoke about it and he always said eddie we always had the best coaches coach or the best or the most thorough coaches coach the kids who were younger so um they can teach them how to trap a ball how to knock a ball how to get feeling for play and these are the most important things there's a lot of coaches these days who have learned the game over the computer and that's sad and you know that's when I came back from back into the A League, there was a lot of that as well. There's too many coaches who have done it. it, it it's it's all about oh, um, watching a video analyst analyst uh, analyst. So, uh, the game changes every second. There's pictures in all different times. It's on the field. It's easy to stop it and to teach players how to play. You have to teach players on the park, um, and that starts from football. always been having fun. And if you're not having fun playing the game, it's hard. And that's how we all started was by having fun in the game. And then later on, you get better and you do it more. So whatever you do in anything in life, the more you do it, the better you're going to get at it. But some people have the passion for it. Some people don't. Um, But I think that this is, it all comes down to the federations. It comes down to the clubs. It comes down to the FFA. Look, we've got a great guy in the FFA at the moment, as I've heard. He played the game before. um, So he knows what needs to be done but he has to surround himself with people, with footballing people. In all these clubs, you need footballing people, not people who uh, never made it in the game and now they want to do it and they want to try and show a kid how to play. I, uh, I'm sorry, but I, I just can't. Uh, I, I go out and watch some coaching of some uh, clubs. It doesn't matter who they are. Here in New South Wales, and I sit on the side and I watch, and the kids have got so much talent, it's ridiculous, but they're taught the wrong way. And like I said, I had top coaches. I had uh, 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 Ivan Petkovic. He, at his age, at 40 years of age, you used to give him the ball. He would show players what to do. I can give that to some coaches now. They can't show a player play how to do it. Rocks, Steve O'Connor, he, he, as a centre-back, he's touched the way he would shield the ball out of it. That's the way I learned how to play. Mm. He used to get it out of your feet, show it. how a coach is going to show they, they can't show it. It's just, you know, and... That's why I'm saying you've got coaches now who can do it. And the big problem was we had an era where fitness coaches started becoming, they started getting involved in these uh, passing drills and and, and warm-ups and, and they used to incorporate it in football. No, stay to your fitness. Do your fitness work on your fitness side. Leave the coaching to the football professionals. Yes. Yes. And that's a big problem. And people can get angry at me or whatever, say whatever they want, but I've played around the whole world and I've seen it's done. And as soon as a fitness coach starts getting involved into football, you say, "Thank you. Off you go. Get the football guy involved in the football. It's brutal, but it's the truth. All these, you know, it's, it's the truth, and it has to start from the top. I say, if you haven't played the game, it's hard to teach a 13-, 14- 15-year-old kid. We have to get out, we have to get into these minds of these kids that they have to play in the A- League, they have to be a star in A-league. And then you've got to work with clubs to sell players, to make money, to generate that money into the clubs, to feed that into the youth, to grow the clubs again, to get, so then the kids aren't paying. So the kids aren't paying for registrations. Sydney FC, Western Sydney, Melbourne Victory, Melbourne uh, City, those kids there shouldn't be playing registration fees. They shouldn't be paying. You should have teams from seven to whatever age, I don't know, 16, who don't pay registration fees because they're the best kids in there. So Dinamo Zagreb, if anyone saw the way that they run things, it's incredible. Hajduk split Dinamo Zagreb, every year. So there's a centre-back there who got sold out left with her for 20 million euros, who's 17 years of age, right? To Salzburg, not Salzburg, to Leipzig in Germany. They've loaned him back into Dinamo Zagreb for two years. I'll tell you that there's two or three centre-backs that I've seen in Australia who aren't any worse off than what he is, but they're not playing in the A-League. Mm-hmm. So why would you go and play a 35-year-old in the A-League? I was playing. Okay, I played. I, they, if there was a kid coming up and pushed me out of the team, the coach should have had the power to say, okay, the next kid's coming up and you have to put the kids to play. Mark Viduca did it. Joe Shiminich did it. I did it. Grella did it. Bresciana. Just so many. Emerton did it. Everyone And the NSL was harder to play in than the A-League now. You had technically better players. There was less chance that people were hungrier. You have to get rid of the A-League. You have to start playing with players' bonuses. You give them enough to live and you say to them, okay, you play 10 games in the A-League, you're going to make 10 grand. I don't know. I'm just – you know what I mean? So the players are too comfortable. There was Dil Pierro in Australia. I sat with him once because I was – I was going to sign for Sydney FC, and after training, we sat down, and he looked at me and laughed, and he said, uh, "I said, what's wrong?" And there was another guy there, a Croatian boy who played there, and he said, "Do you know what happened yesterday?" And I said, "No, what happened?" That he was trying to teach two or show two or the three of the younger boys how what to do with some finishing, and they said, "Oh, oh, oh sorry, can you hurry up because I'm going to get stuck in um, uh, peak hour traffic."
0: <laughs> no word of
3: a lie. Ask whoever you want.
0: <laughs>
3: and he said to me, how can I help that? I said, oh, they're going to get home to play on the, eight, on, on, their, on, their, on the Xbox. You know what I mean? So there are stories and stories about stuff like this, and that's the kids aren't hungry. The parents are trying to push kids. There are so many issues. Look, no one's going to be able to fix it, like Smudge just said, in one year time. We have to identify the problem, and we have to go step by step. We have to try and do it from the roots. If we don't do it from the roots, forget about it. We're going to lose all these players. No other pl- sport is played in Australia like soccer is. So do you know what I mean? So that's we, we have a, f- a foot forward ahead of the rugby league, the union, the cricket and all the rest of it. We've got to utilize this. How do you do it? I don't know. I wish it was easy. It's easy to that. Done. People can say, oh, look, he's on there talking as much as he, as he wants. Yeah. What chance to
4: talk. Sorry. Um, yeah, you're right. Say is that during COVID, there's been an awful lot of work done at FFA to try and find some solutions to these problems, and they're not going to come out, like, overnight. No, of course not. A lot of the things that you're talking about mm. have been under serious review and the mm. continuing, you know. Um, I was asked to, um, if I'd be interested in becoming a, A technical consultant to the FA about co-chair development Mm. and like you I've been passionate um, and on the outside for some years so I I jumped in with both feet yes absolutely Mm. I would love to Mm. because we we can learn a lot from the past even if you can't replicate exactly what happened then because of Mm. changes in society that's right
0: are we actually, no, Smudger, yes. on that, Smudger, on that point about, and I know we've deviated away from the Kevin Musket story and we'll touch on that briefly in just a moment before we say goodbye to you both. Um, okay. But I have to ask you, with this starting 11 panel, I know that you were a part of Football Federation Australia's previous panel in which, you know, you, you publicly admitted that not enough was done in that space. Can we feel <laughs> assured, Smudger, that going forward that something will actually be done as a result of this panel being developed with this advisory board where you've got some great football brains there and and that's not to say you didn't in the past, but our scepticism comes from whether or not something will actually be achieved out of this.
4: Well, it's, it's making recommendations. So um, a lot of the research or all of the research that's been done by people within the FFA, and I have to say here that Graham Arnold as the national coach has been an absolute cornerstone in all of this um, because he's passionate as much as Eddie is about you know, the development of players, because he's the national coach. Of
1: course. Uh,
4: and he's, he's, he's been out there, first and foremost. He's been prepared to talk to everybody and discuss issues. And he openly says, I, I, I don't have all the answers, but I know what we need to try and address. And a lot of things that have been put forward in reports like the performance gap for the men's game and the women's game is identifying, first of all, where the issues lie and, how we compare with the rest of the world in terms of match minutes and opportunities for younger players. And we're, not, we're, we're in a poor position. So we have to do something about that collectively. And that's where bringing people in the game, Arnie's been saying, you know, you've got to bury the hatchet and forget about things that you, you may have been anti some years ago. We've got to take a fresh approach and say, what's in the best interest of developing players? And what's the evidence about if you want to progress overseas, you need to play maybe 25 games a season for three years. And you've got an 80% chance of making a jump into um, Europe. Or in, in in some cases, I know you can't ignore the finances, Eddie, but in some cases. No, 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 no.
3: I'm not saying I'm not say, it's not about that. I played in Japan. I learned a lot in Japan. I went there when I was 28, 29. Okay. Um, I wasn't good enough to go and earn the money I could. And I'll be honest with you. I couldn't earn the money I could in Japan. That If I need, if I wanted to earn that type of money for my family because it was at the end of my career, I would have had to play in the Bundesliga in the top four or five teams yeah. or play in the Premier League or play in the, Spa- in the Spanish League in the top three or four teams. And I'll be honest with you. I wasn't good enough to stay there to play. I played in Holland, which was okay. But I was also in the middle tier club. Yeah. I had to go there. So I had no choice. What I'm saying is, there's a lot of players who look for Asia first because it's an easy option. It's easy to it's easy. It's, it makes more sense at 21, 22, 23, 24 years of age to go to Europe. You can always come back to Asia at 25, 26. You're always going to have a chance. I went to Asia when there wasn't even an Asian qu- quota. I was desperate to go on, to, to go and make the money, and yeah. Smudge, so I'm honest about that. But my first thing was never Asia; it was always Europe. Yeah. So you know and. Uh, it doesn't matter where you go, but Europe opens people's eyes up. It teaches you so many things, but we were lucky enough to go to the Institute of Sport where it taught you how to get ready for Europe. I left home at 14 or nine months. I wasn't even 15. I went to the Institute of Sport. I was there with, I'll tell you, some really, really strong personalities. I, I was the little boy. I hadn't even reached puberty yet. I was at the Institute of Sport. <laughs> I was with some real, yeah, with real mafiosos, and they were teaching me how to, yeah, it's the truth. <laughs> these days, these kids get driven, yeah, to training by their mum and dads, taken out of the car, their mum and dad complaining to the coach, sending a text message to the dad, to the mum. That doesn't happen. Yeah. Stay the hell away. Go, that's how I learned the tough way. I had your brother, Lucy. Uh, uh, Ned, uh, not Ned. The uh, um, oh, Ivan. Uh, Ivan, one of the hardest personalities, nicest blokes ever, mm. and Joe Shimanich. Uh, you made a mistake. You would hear about it straight away. I walked <laughs> into the Sydney United change room at seventeen or eighteen, whenever it was, and if I if I said hello, the older players would say to me, "Why are you saying hello?" If I didn't say hello, they'd say to me, "Why didn't you say hello?" So <laughs> they were always keeping you on your toes. And that was getting me ready. I think the kids are getting babied these days. It's a lot with the coaching as well. He got screamed at, didn't get screamed at. I used to get bollocked at at Mm. times, especially by rocks at at the Institute. And, you know, that was, that's where I learned my trade. People like him are missing. They're not, they're nowhere to be seen anymore. And that's the sad thing.
1: You know, it's, oh, if, yeah, sorry. No, can I just ask on this? I think it's a really good discussion. It kind of constantly yeah. comes up. We talk about yeah. the changes. Um, yeah. and this is for you as well, Ron, and, and you as well, Lucy. These changes, are they happening just in Australia? This kind of, I guess, softening of players and the players aren't as, and as kind of strong as they used to be mentally and all these things. Is, is that happening just in Australia or is that, are we seeing that in other parts of the world and is that a worldwide problem? And if so, if it's a worldwide problem, why does it seem to be kind of affecting us more? You know, like Japan's still producing good players. Korea's still producing good players. England's producing good players. I, I would imagine the same things are happening there. It seems to be affecting us worse. It's, happening in, that
3: ar- it's happening in Arsenal. mm. <laughs>
1: Been happening there for
3: um, the last since Wenger's gone, it's been happening there.
0: It's yeah. true. So, Smudger, can you, Smudger, can you answer that? Are we are we seeing this well, elsewhere in the world? Eddie,
4: Eddie gave an example um, of, of a young player saying, you know, I can't stay because I'm, I'm going to get caught in the traffic or I've got to go. Um, Jason McAfee told a story during the Euros about um, that Robbie Fowler had told him at Liverpool. Where he was doing some work with the strikers, and they didn't seem switched on very much. And he called them in and and said to them, it, "Is there something that you, you're not getting here, lads?" He said, "Because I'm not, I'm not getting any vibe that you're kind of switched on." Has anyone got a question? And he, and this player turned to him and said, "When do I get my car?" Oh, <laughs> so oh. mate, you know. <laughs> And they all, they all just fell about laughing in the studio, but that was a true story. So, you know, it's what I'm saying is, um, Eddie's saying that, you know, we may be, um, a bit too smothery in terms of how the kids grow up. It's no different. Like, you know, I've had a number of people say to me, well, you know, if you get one contract, uh, in the Premier League now, you could be set for life. Um, and everyone's got their name on their boots. You know, things I mean, that's obviously an exaggeration. That's
3: society though. That's society. That's it's changed. Yeah. It's, yeah.
4: it's, it's like social media. That's had a massive impact on what people think and how they think. So we've just got to live with it.
3: But I smudge, I wouldn't mind if the players I wouldn't mind if the players were that good from yeah. Australia to do that. <laughs> but yeah. we don't even get there to do that.
0: It's true, it's true, gentlemen. (laughs) gentlemen, it has been such a delight. I I almost actually feel regretful and sorry that I begrudgingly have to say goodbye to you because the show has blown out massively over time and the reason we've allowed for it is because the discussion has been that great. You're absolutely right before both of you in agreeing that there is hours and hours of conversation in this. I would love to get you both back again in future to continue these chats um, because I think they're really valuable and it's about how we take the next steps going forward from we've identified the problem, as you said before, Smudger, but how do we work towards, and, and you're in a, in a very good position with uh, Football Australia now to be able to, to provide those suggestions and a commentary and recommendations about how to improve this, but how do we get to the next step? How do we advance from this, you know, this rut that we're in with so many issues in Australian football? Eddie, great to have your insights. Great to see you doing well, my friend. Um, would love to Thank catch you. up with you again. Smudger, always a pleasure. Thank you both so much for your time. We look forward to catching up with you again very soon. The engagement has been so strong with the both of you, so take care, William. We'll speak soon.
4: Bye. Okay. Okay.
0: (laughs) Take care. Thanks so much, Smudge. Great to see you. Oh, Stolich, I hated saying goodbye to them. I wanted to keep the conversation going, but we—we'll get them back. We'll get them back. Their time is king. Cash is king, some would say, but in our industry, time is king. Um, I, I, I hate that we have to breathe through some of these items, but um, I know that we want to mention them. I want to reference back to the point that we made about Kevin Musket, unfortunately being sacked from his club in Belgium now after 14 games. We wanted him to do well, Stolich. We wanted him to see, you know, we wanted to see him achieve great things in Europe, um, but unfortunately it wasn't a B for him. But where does he go to now? Some are saying back to the A-League. I've seen commentary about Newcastle Jets because because we know that that position is still up for grabs. The, the club's sale is still up for grabs. I mean, for goodness sake, when are we ever going to reach an end on that point? But what are your thoughts?
1: I think um, it maybe take a little bit of a break from the game, you know, maybe just, just six months. You know, let let the dust settle. A lot of teams are in flux anyway because of COVID. But, you know, like uh, Rhonda Blackwell says here, two wins out of 14. Uh It's just not good. Like, you just can't defend that, you know. And you're looking at the stats and, listen, I'll be honest, and I think everyone in Australian football, we, none of us really watched the Belgian Pro League. We were just kind of looking at the results for seeing it. But it hasn't really worked out for him. And uh, that doesn't necessarily mean that he's a bad coach or that he's not up to even the level of Europe. It just means that that fit didn't work. Now, I'd love to see him get another opportunity over there, but one thing I will say is that it, it does highlight the success that Ange has had, and one mm-hmm. thing that I think really helped Ange is Ange went with a very clear philosophy of how he wanted to play the game, and that has reaped the rewards in Japan, and, and I think full credit to that. Now, I'm very interested to see how Tony Popovich goes once Zanthi gets up because, listen, he was in Turkey, was 11 games. It's, you can't. Sometimes these crazy things happen, but Popovich has an equally clear philosophy on how he wants to play. It's a very different one to Ange, but he has a clear philosophy. I think that's going to help him. I think that I'm hoping that Popovich will be successful and we'll start seeing, you know, more opportunities for our coaches in Europe. But as for Kevin Musket, yeah, listen, two wins out of 14 is not gone well. He'll learn from this. He'll, he'll know, you know, it was difficult even at the start. If you remember, he was there, he signed in December, but then they, the mm-hmm. license wasn't um, valid because it was an AFC license, not a European license. Mm-hmm. So he had to wait until June, we had a lot of issues there, but you know, we'll, we'll keep an eye on that team because uh, Liberato Kakachi is still there from uh, Wellington Phoenix. Yeah. So, interesting times, but yeah, I think Muskie will bounce back somewhere eventually.
0: I hope he does because I think, um, you know, contrary to popular belief, I think he's a fantastic guy actually. Um, Off the pitch, uh, you know, dealing with him, I've I've made that very clear over the years about how much of a gentleman he was. He was so well liked by his players. He achieved phenomenal things with Melbourne victory. I think he's a great tactician and he's got a very bright future in in, in football, wherever that is. But we we hope he does well somewhere overseas. It would be fantastic to see. Let's quickly talk about the Asian Champions League and our very own A-League sides uh, featuring Sydney FC beat Shanghai 4-0 in a dead rubber match but we know that Australian teams usually have good luck in dead rubber matches a la last things and victory of course they've still kept their hopes alive. Uh, Perth Glory also drew 2-2 and they're in action again tomorrow but how do you rate their performances so far Stolich? I mean I know that you've been pretty clear about it on social media and and much to the ire of our good friend Danny Townsend who we've always by the way got a lot of time for um, uh, the CEO over at Sydney FC but um, you know a good result for them but I think of all the Australian teams to me they've been the most impressive. They mm. just need a clinical goal scorer. Look at what happens when you let Lafondre Le go. Um, and, and, you know, they had so many great opportunities to score continuously throughout their campaign so far. But they, to me, have been the shining light of the Australian teams. But how have you rated everybody else?
1: Well, yeah, I mean, this is the point the is pro- like, I think every single team that every single A-League team has faced in this Asian Champions League has been there for the taking. You've seen Perth have lost, I think, two games where they were leading with, you know, eight, they were eight, one, one nil up and it was the 87th minute and then uh, they scored twice and it was Ulsan. Another game was nil all. They copped two late goals again, I think, 89th and 93rd minute. Um, again, just they're there for the taking. These Asian teams, they're not that far above us, even with all the problems that we've had, even with all the fact of COVID and budgets and we haven't played any games for a few months and a lot of, play you know, MPL players were playing. And, and i got to say, some of the MPL players, I was very uh, impressed with Daniel Steins from Perth Glory. Wonderful number 10. You know, he was surrounded mm-hmm. by some very experienced players in Diego Castro, Bruno Fornaroli, Neil Kilkenny, who I think is a very, very good player. But very good young player. Uh, Ianucci uh, came off the bench for Melbourne Victory uh, last week. I'd like to see him get more minutes. He scored. He was fantastic too. So there have been some good little performances coming out. But here's the thing that frustrates me is Perth glory. There was definitely a chance for them to do better. You know, they, oh, yeah. they had great players. You know, Popovich left. But... The the disaster of Nabu leaving, sorry Nabu signing and then leaving Atkinson, crucial players that could have helped them. Uh, you you, need, you look at Melbourne Victory, you know they still have a chance and that's great. Sydney FC, great example. Had they held on to Lafondra and listen players go and and maybe they couldn't match the money. But had they held on to the Fonja, they just had that bit better preparation. That's When I say that we can do better, I I know these players can, you know, with the full team, we can beat these teams. We can beat Shanghai. They're not that far away from us. Yes, they spend a lot more money on marquee players than us, but the most of their squad is pretty much on the same level, if not lower, than most of our players. And it showed last night. Sydney FC showed them up. And I think really next season, we really have to start – demanding that we do better in these competitions because you know i'm really hoping that victory gets through but you know maybe they're not and then i think it's going to be 12 teams in the last four years have been in the group stage and none of them have made it through how is that good enough you know how how is how are we accepting of that as fans you know to me i i would be if i was a cnfc fan i'd say great work last night and you know they performed well in games but we need to manage games better when we're one nil up we need to defend better you know we need to control games better so I don't know. I just I look at it and I say, well done to these A-League teams given the circumstances. There were some good performances in there. And, you know, the young players coming through, it can't be easy for them, you know, a lot of new players. But we can do better. We know we can do better. We have to start doing better and we have to start having higher standards.
0: And the reality is we want to see them doing better, particularly as a nation that has experienced the success of winning an ACL crown. Uh, I want to move on to the next topic of conversation, Stollage. The FFA Cup changes have been released by Football Australia and the question is what do you make of them? For our fans tuning in today, great to have your company. It's been a massive show, of course, uh, a blowout show. We were supposed to be keeping this to an hour, but um, to accommodate the great brains of both Eddie Bosnar and Ron Smith, we've decided to just add in a couple of more news items items to, uh, to, to run through before we completely close up shop. Um, but tell us, uh, Stolich, your reaction. And, and I think largely from my perspective, largely I think they're pretty good um, introductions, right?
1: Yeah, I think so. And, and you know, i got to say it was great to have the, the passion of Eddie Bosnar and the passion uh, of Ron Smith. And I think, uh, you know, well, that's the thing. We always talk about the show and we love the passion in the comments as well. We might disagree on all these things, but I love the passion. You know, we talked about the passion last week of Mar- uh, Marcos Flores and stuff like that. But, Anyway, I think let's go. FA Cup, uh, FA Cup changes. First of all, there's talk of a name change. There's talk of the Australia Cup, which I think that's fine. That, that's good. That, that'd be well, become you can't interesting. Call
0: it the FA Cup now that they've changed their name no. to Football Australia, which I think we'll continue yeah. to call them FFA for the rest of our lives. To be yeah. honest, yeah,
1: it's, <laughs> it's going to take at least a year for us to get over it. But <laughs> I like. it.
0: But hang on, if we were to vote on what name change would be the most suitable, and please, I'd love to hear from our regular viewers still with us um, during the program here, Michael Long. Great to see you still with us, Ari Brisbane. Fabulous to have your company. Justin Parker, big shout-out to you, mate, with your luscious locks. Great to have your company once again on the World Game Live. Um, But tell us, what name change would you prefer to see the FFA Cup revert to? Stolich, from your perspective?
1: Well, you know, I mean, we already have the Johnny Warren medal. I'd love to see the Johnny Warren Cup, but, you know, if if it's... If it's the Australia Cup, that's fine. Um, you know, yeah, it is it was kind of one of our traditional tournaments. Mm-hmm. And I think I think that's good. So that's fine. But you know, the John Moriarty Cup from Ari Brisbane wouldn't mind that either. That's that's not that, a, that's that not would a bad be
0: thing. fantastic to yeah. see like that or Michael Long how about this one from him the Priceline Cup <laughs>
1: one one thing I always hate is when it's you know the Emirates FA Cup or whatever they stick oh, a sponsor in there I know they have to do it because of money but oh, it's always like when people go and congratulations for winning the Emirates FA Cup but like, get out of here man! anyway Sorry,
0: that's how I feel no disrespect but that's how I feel about calling them the Westfield Matildas they're the uh, Matildas. yeah it's a joke they're not a owned joke. by these are the people's team. Yeah. We own this team. Australia Damn owns. this team. Mark Bowers, the Southern Cross Cup. You know what? I don't even mind that, really. That um, pays homage to Australia. But, you know, I equally yeah, The love-
1: Southern Cross is also <laughs> in Brazil. There's, yeah, like, well- in the Southern Hemisphere. We're not playing... No. If we create a Southern Hemisphere tournament, we can have the Southern Cross Cup. But one thing I really <laughs> like about um, the FA Cup this is.
0: One, Justin Parker, haha, again with the hair, lots of laughs, jealous. Lucy. I actually am because they're so much more luscious than mine. They mm-hmm. really are. But Justin, keep up your good work because you've got a sensational main. Sorry, as you were stolid. This show's going to be two hours. We're going to get sacked.
1: There we go. Well, you know, I, I'm a little worried about my hair. I think Australian football is starting to make it recede slightly. So watch this space. every week. We can have, we can have a little – an off side line. VAR can be like, yeah, yep, yeah, it's gone back. It's gone back one centimetre. Anyway. Stop it. Carry on. <laughs> <laughs> um, I love the fact that it's going to be standalone weekends for the semifinal yeah. and the final. It's going to create a lot of build-up. I think that's important. Um, there was a bit of talk about a neutral venue for the final. I don't mind that. Uh, I know some people are saying, oh, it's a long way to go if, you know, perfect get in there and all that stuff but I kind of like you know I always like in England when they when fans sing song about going to Wembley and then and they mm-hmm. have a day out at Wembley and it's really important you have great traveling support and you know it doesn't yeah. maybe necessarily always have to be in Sydney or in Melbourne or wherever but I really like that aspect and I think for a final you're willing to make the trip so that's one thing I quite like the neutral venue thing big big news is that they will be awarded a uh, Asian Champions League spot, a preliminary spot. Now, if we don't improve our results in Asia, we might drop down to the AFC Cup, which is kind of going to be like a Europa League version that um, they're setting up in a few years. So we need to be very careful of that, that it still is an Asian Champions League spot. But that's great because it does give an opportunity to teams that aren't in the A-League to aim for something. And, you know, um, we haven't seen a non-A-League team win the FA, well, Australia, the Cup competition yet. Um, <laughs> But at least it gives them something to aim for. And that's, I think, very, very exciting. So, you know, I think back to the FA Cup and, you know what, sorry, the FA Cup, there's been some great memories, and I feel like we don't cherish it enough. I think back to that final where Adelaide won and Goodwin scored a cracker and it was an amazing tournament. I think back to Fornaroli's speech when uh, Melbourne City won and Tim Cady was there, and he and he said, we know what he said. I can't say it, but that was a, a classic moment, the ball boy incident with Sydney FC that time. You know, all, all the, the great, you know, the A-League clubs going to Bentley Greens and these smaller grounds and stuff like that. I think it's been great. I think it's a fantastic tournament. I think we need to celebrate it more, and we need to, we need to create more of its history. So I think to give it it's more more respect by giving it that ACL spot, by giving it that standalone weekend, I think that's great news.
0: I couldn't agree more. I also like the fact that um, you'll be able to see teams like the Wollongong Wolves, who were the champions in 2019. Mm also given uh, you know an opportunity to feature in it um in the final rounds i think that's great because now this is about making it an inclusive football ecosystem and that's what i think is is a really positive move in all of this ivan stragan one of our top fans here on the world game live hello to you ivan great to have your company my friend the best part is the random draw so many Mm. good things take out of this big kudos to Football Federation Australia or Football Australia for God's sake. Just, just you know what, just accept that we're not changing your name. You can change it but we're going to keep making these mistakes. But big kudos to James Johnson & Co for working very hard on this. It was also part of the consultative process as well. So it's fantastic to see that, you know, everyone was included in developing this process. I want to quickly move on to the next item of conversation and that is over to you, Nick Stoll and our Aussies Abroad. Some Mm. fabulous is the headline act for me in all of this has to be about our Watermobile scoring in the Champions League? Wow, this is a big deal. Um, this is a massive, massive deal. Um, scoring for me, too. You know, one of the great things that I'm, I'm so proud to see in all of this is that a player of his caliber who had such humble beginnings in which he confessed that himself in his social media post has now gone from that kicking a ball around barefoot to now scoring in the, in the Champions League. So, have we appreciated just how much of a big deal this really is?
1: think we have, maybe, uh, SPS. I don't know about the kind of the broader uh, media community, and I know um, people within the kind of African-Australian community were a bit frustrated that this didn't receive more attention. Um, but, yeah, like you say, it is fantastic. Scoring at Ajax in the Johan Cruyff Arena, you know, how many Aussies can say that? Uh, in the Champions League, we don't have very many players there anymore. So he's done really well. It's been an incredibly tough group. But I've got to say, Michelin have really, you know, I think they've, They haven't won many games. I think they've just got the draw this morning. That's it. But, man, tough group. I mean, talk about group of death. Liverpool... Atalanta, Ajax. I mean, Atalanta, one of the best teams in Italy. Ajax are the best team in Holland. And Liverpool, probably the best team in England. And, you know, defending champions and all that kind of stuff. So, I think a one has done great. I think we should celebrate him. Someone else who's on the rise, Harry Kill got his jersey right here. Uh, the legend that is Harry. Um, you know, they've won six of their last seven. Uh, so, that that's really good. Oldham, you know, because uh, at least at the start, it was a bit of a worry. We thought it might go the Kevin Musket route. But, He's done well, six out of seven. Hopefully he keeps it going. And Mitch Langrack set a new record uh, for clean sheets in a season. It's the most ever by his club. Uh, So he's done fantastic. And he's got to be back within the shout of the Socceroos. And listen, one thing i got to say, in Australia, we never have a shortage of goalkeepers. For all the youth development products, you know, we're never goalkeepers. We just produce them like like they're just a factory.
0: Yeah, but okay, fair point. But who are the next ones coming through? That's my concern. You know, post the Matty Ryan era, who are we actually looking to to step up as our lead gloveman? And I know that I'm asking us to think, you know, well... Tom into- Glover.
1: Tom, Glover, Tom Glover Melbourne City. He, he was very good uh, in the final series. He, I mean, goalkeepers do develop a little later as well. Um, so let's see what happens. But um, anyway. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> you know, speaking of players who develop a bit later, there's Corey. <laughs>
0: There's the father of my child and my daughter coming in to say hello because they think, you know what, your show's supposed to be finished now, and they're absolutely bloody right. We are still gibbering away. Um, I want to end the show. Let's um, finish things off now. (laughs) I'm telling you, we are going to get the sack. Um, Bad news, good news. Um, I want to kind of leapfrog onto your bad news this week because I, I look, I, I have another one that I will reference but um, I don't mm. feel as though there was worse news than what we experienced in the last week and I want you to take it away with them and share them with us. And also for those of you tuning in before we wrap up, it would be great to hear what your bad news, good news is and we look to say goodbye.
1: Yeah, so obviously the bad news this week was the great Diego, Armando, Maradona uh, passing away. Very unfortunate. Um, yeah. You know, man, it's all very upset. Uh, we had the special show last Thursday where we talked about what he meant for football, what he meant, you know, for the people of Argentina, for the people of Napoli and southern Italy. But one thing i got to say, the good news is I've really, really enjoyed reading all the tributes to him, seeing everything that, you know, Napoli is doing by wearing the, the Argentina shirt with his name on the back and they're going to rename the stadium after him. I love what Bocca did by lighting up his box. uh, Mm -hmm. They they turned everything dark and it was just his box where he used to watch the games was lit up. You know, I love the tribute that Lionel Messi did wearing his old uh, jersey of Newell's old boys, which, you know, funnily enough... Maradona, his very first game that he was, Lionel Messi was a halftime entertainment at six years old, juggling the ball there. So there's a nice bit of symmetry. It's an incredible story. So I've just really enjoyed what Maradona kind of brought out in all of us talked about all these all these great stories whether it be that great warm-up dance that he was doing or juggling a golf ball at Oxford University or you know like uh Foz was talking about how he always stood up you know against FIFA and against all the terrible things they were doing he could have just stayed silent and probably made a lot more money if he did and just took the money that they were offering but he always always stood up for what he believed was right so I think while it's bad news, obviously, that he passed, I really did love kind of what it brought out as us, as the football community, and the lessons that we can learn and how we can say, well, let's look at this guy and let's look at what made him great and let's try and get that everywhere. Let's try and create an environment where we can have more Maradonas, more outspokenness, more people being exactly who they want to be and people who – Listen, Maradona felt the game as much as any fan did. That's what I I always loved as well about him, that, you know, as soon as he retired, he'd go watch Boca every week and he'd be singing with his shirt off. And You know, this wasn't a guy just sitting in the VIP, like, sipping his champagne. This guy was trying to go with the fans every single week. It's just what an incredible human being, uh, and I've loved every single tribute to him.
0: Oh, it's a fantastic um, bad news, good news. Um, not in, the, not in the, the way of the bad news, but the good news and the ability that we have had over the course of the past week since he passed to be able to remember him for all of his glory and his greatness. I know that a lot of people took it as an opportunity to start pointing out the fact that he was a very flawed character. Of that there is no dispute, but that is not how I want to remember the great Diego Armando Maradona because what he's done for the game is revolutionary. He, to me, is the GOAT. I thought that Craig Foster summed it up really well when he said that He is the greatest of all time, and now it's essentially up to the likes of Ronaldo and Messi, of which we cannot dispute, are also incredible footballers to knock him off that perch. And some would argue that they already have, but from my perspective, there will be no greater revolutionary in the game than Maradona. What he did was just Mm -hmm. incredible. Um, my bad news this week was the fact that Kevin Muscat did get sacked. That was really hard to read and, and, and wake up to, because I think that, you know, like I said before, he's a fantastic coach and, and we really, as a football community, want to see our Aussies doing well abroad. You summed it up very well, Stolich, when you said that this really just highlights and, and, and puts under the microscope, Ange Postacoglu's success even more so if we weren't already cognizant of it. So really sad to see Musky leaving in that respect. Um, but my good news is, um, my good news, I want to be able to share the fact that, you know, we have all loved the news that our Mobile scored. Um, and that, I think, is something that, as you said, um, uh, you know, SBS, we were able to recognise it and, and that's why I'm taking this opportunity to recognise it as well because the African community need to know that these achievements that this young boy um, have, has managed to succeed on this stage are remarkable and, um, and, and they need to be celebrated and understood that, you know, this isn't something that you can just go and achieve by scoring in, a, in an mp Game down the road. This has come through hard work, years of hard work and dedication, and to score on the Champions League stage. Um, many players that you speak to now a days um, post their retirement. And many of the greats will say that there is no better feeling than that, and there is no better competition than the Champions League. So that's how I'm ending things. bill you deserve all the credit as a result of that success. So it's been a massive show. As I've kept saying, we're probably going to get sacked. Um, and I've probably let this one blow out over time because I'm going to be missing for the next two shows because I'm heading down to Canberra for some much-needed time off to catch up with my sister and her two girls coming from Brisbane. COVID hasn't been kind to anybody and I haven't seen them in almost a year. So it's going to be a nice build-up to Christmas to share some much-needed family time. Um, I'm going to take this opportunity, of course, we will be back to do a Christmas special, but I'm going to take this opportunity to wish everyone um, a really safe and happy December because we know that it's been such a tough 2020 period and I hope that you're all getting the opportunity to catch up with loved ones and really enjoy these moments because it has been such a rough time. But please the show will go on so make sure that you continue to tune in with nick stoll and and he'll have some fabulous guests coming up of course um our big thanks to eddie bosner and the great dr ron smith for joining us on the show today if you missed any of our program you can watch this one later on demand so make sure you tune in some really fabulous football conversation being had with them and also a massive shout out to the great Samantha Lewis, our women's football expert and contributor to the World Game. Uh, she she really summed up beautifully what's going on in Australian women's football at the moment so make sure you tune into that first part of the program and thanks to our viewers as well. You guys make this show sing. It is always a pleasure to catch up with you and to engage with you. To our regular fans, we love your loyalty, we love your passion, we love chatting football with you so we look forward to welcoming you back next week and of course for a lot of the stories that we have referenced and discussed you can head to the World Game web It is your one-stop shop for all things opinion piece-based football content coming out of both Australia and globally, video pieces. So make sure you head there to get your latest news and views. Nick Stoll, it's been great so far, my friend. I will miss you for the next two weeks, but I know you'll do a good job of keeping the show running. And I look forward to our Christmas special and our season preview for the A-League and the w It's going to be fantastic. So, guys, thanks so much. Take care as always. But on behalf of myself and my brilliant colleague, Nick Stoll, it's goodbye for now and we'll see you again very soon. Ciao.